0: Welcome to the New Books Network. For generations, Americans thought of the world as that of the civilized and the heathen. This history, and how it relates to race and American exceptionalism, is documented in the book Heathen, Religion and Race in American History by Dr. Katherine Jin Lum. She is a historian of race and religion in America and the author of Damned Nation, Hell in America from the Revolution to Reconstruction. Her writing has appeared in the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and much more. She is Associate Professor of Religious Studies in collaboration with the Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity at Stanford University. In this episode, we discuss both of her books, but focus more on the brand new book, Heathen, out now from Harvard University Press. You can follow Dr. Jin Lum on Twitter at KJenLum, and you can follow me on Twitter at Classical Underscore Ideas. Thank you so much for listening. Dr. Katherine Jin Lum, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm delighted that you're here, and I'm wondering if you can just spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience a little bit, however you see fit, so they know a little bit about who you are and what you do.
1: Sure, yeah. So um, I am talking to you from the Silicon Valley, where I've been for the last 10 years. Wonderful. Um, I teach here in the Religious Studies Department at Stanford, um, where I also have affiliations with the Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity um, and the History Department.
0: Wonderful. So I am a teacher as well and I love talking to scholars about um you know how they see religion in the US because this is mm-hmm. the the stuff that my students mostly want to know about. They want to know about the history of religion in their country. So this mm-hmm. is going to be something that I'm just delighted to hear about. So you're a historian of religion and race in America. And I'd love to know a little bit about this journey to this career and specialty. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the major turning points that you've experienced along your professional and academic path?
1: Yeah. You know, I love hearing scholars talk about their professional (laughs) journeys. Me too. (laughs) I love it.
0: It's (laughs) One of my favorite questions. I ask it to everybody.
1: Okay. Yeah. So I've, I've always been interested in the humanities, but um, I did not know that I wanted to be a historian at first um, initially, what I wanted to do was to be a creative writer. Actually, I wanted to write fiction. Mm. Um, so when I first got to college, I thought I would be a Russian lit major of all things. Mm. Um, because those were the books that I loved reading. And so I thought that if I, you know, studied them seriously, I could learn how to write like that. Yeah. Um, I even took Russian <laughs> my first year of college. Uh, but I I soon realized that for me, and this is not for everyone, but for me, studying the literature. Um, academically, honestly, kind of hampered my ability to enjoy it. Mm. And when everything had to be analyzed, I think I, I kind of lost the ability to just read. So I, I pivoted from Russian lit to history and East Asian studies. Um, and I thought, okay, I'm going to study something that will help me understand myself, um, help me understand the history of my people. I'm Chinese American. Um, and I figured that I would study the history of Chinese immigration to the U.S., so i started to take mandarin um, started to take courses in chinese history and asian american history Um, but then i had i had a family crisis uh, my second year of of college my father got very sick uh, and was given six weeks to live Um, so for me you know experiencing his illness um, and his passing during college was really a major turning point Mm-hmm. Um, not only in my professional journey, or not only my personal journey, but also in my professional journey. Um, so I became, I became very interested in the history of attitudes towards death. Um, I was curious about, you know, the ways that I was responding to it, and other people around me were responding to it, and where those attitudes had come from. Um, and I was interested in you know, people's beliefs or ideas about what, if anything, came after death. And Mm. so that's that's really what led me to study religious history.
0: I love it. Well, speaking of your interest in Russian literature, my favorite novel of all time, who I'll talk anybody's ear off uh, if they're ever (laughs) interested, is The Master and Margarita uh, by Mikhail Bulgakov. I love that book so much. So I'm just like nerding out real (laughs) quick about the fact that you like love Russian literature as well. So (laughs) wonderful. Well, we're going to chat about your newest book heathen religion and race in american history from harvard university press and before we do that though uh, i'm new to your work so i went back and i dug into a little bit of your previous stuff as well and you have a 2014 book damned nation which looks wonderful so i was kind of poking through the introduction of that too and i'm curious about you know the lead up to Heathen Mm -hmm. and these like the interim years between 2014 and 2022 after Damned Nation and pre-Heathen, they kind of like moved you from one book to the other. Tell me a little bit about that space between.
1: Yeah, yeah. So with with Damned Nation, I mean, that book really grew out of, you know, I was talking about my interest in death and the afterlife. Um, So for that book, I wanted to know how or whether people's beliefs about the afterlife affected their behavior in this life. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to know, you know, what does it, what does it mean to worry that you yourself might be going to hell? Uh, And then to think that other people might be going there. Um, So the vast majority of people who were thought to be going to hell in the period that I was studying in that book, which is mostly the 19th century, you know, the first century of nationhood, um, were the so-called heathens, Mm -hmm. people who did not believe or did not know the God of the Bible. So in Damned Nation, I, you know, look at the subject of heathens a bit, but not Not nearly as much as I wanted to. Mm -hmm. Um, Damned Nation was my graduate dissertation, so I had to keep the scope fairly manageable. So again, like it, you know, just focuses on one century and it's mostly confined um, to the U.S. So my new book, He Then, takes the questions that I started looking at in Damned Nation and extends them back to the colonial era and forward to the present day, Um, and it goes beyond the nation's borders to really look at how Americans have. Um, looked at and interacted with the world, and really, what it's what it asks most poignantly is what the relationship has been between the religious figure of the heathen um, and the racialized other. Um, in terms of what it was like to like actually move from one book to another in those in between years, I think the answer is very hard. Um, <laughs> writing a book in grad school was actually like very blissful in some ways because. You know, I didn't have, I, like I was TAing, but I didn't have classes that I was responsible for. Right. I had a dissertation committee that I could bounce ideas off of. You know, they were reading every chapter.
0: Yeah, and, like a built-in and, editorial board.
1: Exactly, exactly. And by the time you're writing the second book, like that is not the case. Um, but I am I'm grateful to have, you know, communities in the field, lots of friends, colleagues who read pieces and, um, <clears throat> and institutional support to, to get the book done.
0: Wonderful. Well, I am really excited to hear about some of the concepts within this book, and I wanted to start off by just something really basic. When you say the word heathen in the context Mm -hmm. of American history and religion, to what and whom are you referring?
1: Yeah, so heathens historically refer to people who were not Christians, um, not Jews, not Muslims, so basically people um, outside of the monotheistic Abrahamic traditions, Right, who were understood to either have no knowledge of or who like actively chose to reject um, the Abrahamic God. Um, as I show in the book, though, the heathen or the concept of the heathen took on a lot more valences than that over mm-hmm. the years. So heathens were thought to be people whose um, societies had either failed to develop or had you know stagnated. Um, they were thought to be people who were unable or unwilling to, um, sufficiently care for the lands that they lived on because they failed to understand that, you know, the God of the Bible had given humankind's nature to subdue um, and to domesticate. Heathens were understood to instead, like, basically worship nature, so they're not, you know, domesticating it in the same way. Um, and then they were thought to be incapable of taking care of their bodies uh, and the bodies of their families and their friends um, because they're not cultivating the land, they're not, you know, stockpiling enough food, and so they're subject to famine, subject to disease, etc. Um <clears throat> you can see who Americans thought heathens were by looking at missionary maps of the world. Uh, so these are maps that like basically color code the world according to religion. So in the 19th century, the vast majority of the world was thought to be heathen. Um, and by the 20th century, and even to the present day, um, missionary organizations are no longer using the terminology of heathenness, but they're still color coding the world by religion. So now they're using different terms like. Um, unreached people or frontier people uh, Mm. who live in the 1040 window, which is the area between 10 and 40 degrees North latitude. And that includes um, North Africa, the Middle East and Asia. And this is an area thought to house basically the most Muslims, Hindus and Buddhists in the world um, who Mm. are supposed to need um, conversion.
0: Interesting. Where does that 1040 term come from? Like how does that, how far back does that go? in like identifying that as like the the zone of the like the heathen
1: that's a really good question and i don't actually off the top of my head know when that term originated so
0: gotcha okay well something that's really interesting too is like uh when i was looking at the book uh i noticed that one of my past guests of the podcast, Dr. Judith Weisenfeld, yeah. did a cover blurb about Judith. the book. So I, I emailed her and I said, what did you think about this book? Because I'm reading it right now and I'm <laughs> loving it. And she said that what she was most fascinated by uh, were a couple of things, but one of the things she was most fascinated by was how the term heathen is attached to both land Mm-hmm. And people, right. and so I'm kind of seeing that that come out now in this uh, in this description they were giving. Do, my, do I kind of have that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, right. It's never just about you know wrong belief. It's not just an interior state. It's manifested on environments that so-called heathens are thought to live in, and it, it's supposed to manifest on their bodies too.
0: Mm, interesting. Okay, so what I want to know now is if you can tell me a little bit about the role of white. American religion in the framing of heathen othering because we have this mm-hmm. very complex history so how does like white protestant culture in the united states like from its founding all the way through the next couple of centuries you know kind of lead to this uh this framing of who the heathen is tell me a little yeah. bit about that
1: Yeah, I mean, so white Protestant Americans are inheriting a lot of their ideas about so-called heathens from, you know, their European forebears. And there's also, you know, a Catholic tradition of naming people as heathens um, and considering people as heathens who need to be converted as well. Um, So really like the first chapter of the book kind of looks at that long, that deep background. So white Americans are, white Protestant Americans are inheriting a lot of their ideas about um, so-called heathens from their European forebears. And so there's a long tradition of labeling people as heathens. Um, and the term heathen comes from, it's kind of a rough um, Germanic translation of pagan, the Latin pagan, which is thought to refer to the people who um, live in the countryside, you know, in the old um, Roman days, you know, when Rome is being Christianized, it's the people who are living uh, on the outskirts of society who are unwilling to accept the new religion. So similarly with the term heathen, The heathens are thought to be the people who are living in the heath, um, who are wandering in the heath in Europe, as Europe is being Christianized, who are continuing to worship the old gods like Thor and Odin um, and not accepting Christianity. So in the context of um, Europeans, you know, going out and realizing that there's a lot more of the world and there's a lot more people in the world, they take this term heathen and expand it to cover, again, the vast majority of people who are not obviously Christians. In terms of, you know, white American Protestantism and how that factors into the framing of heathen othering, um, white Protestant Americans are creating missionary societies um, in the 18th and the 19th centuries. Um, And these missionary societies, you know, create all sorts of magazines, children's literature, um, books, Sunday school material, et cetera, that frame the heathen world um, in the way that I described earlier as, you know, stagnated, um, with blighted landscapes and suffering bodies that need the help of white American Christians to save. Um, so what I argue in the book is actually the category of the heathen really helped to create and justify the colonial binaries of the white governor um, vis-a-vis the non-white people who need to be governed. Mm. So it served as a kind of rationale or justification for white Americans to intervene into other people's lands and their lives um, in the name of saving so-called heathens. Um, So this really, this is, this comes out of scholar Sylvester Johnson's um, work on African-American religions, 1500 to 2000. And he writes that this is fundamentally what race is about, right? It's about the division of the world into the colonizers and the colonized. So the figure of the heathen is really creating The figure of the white American savior um, as a contrast to, you know, the suffering heathen world out there.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, and I'm curious as well, um, (laughs) if you have any thoughts, I'm sure you do have plenty of thoughts on this, but like the indigenous first nations populations Mm -hmm. that were, you know, surrounding uh, across the entire continent, you know, before the arrival of white people to the continent. And how does that fit in? Like with this, uh, this heathen like uh, divide between these two groups?
1: Yeah. So again, like the, you know, the um, concept of the heathen and ideas that built up around it were not just Protestant, they're Catholic as well. And so um, I think what's really important here is the the doctrine of discovery, um, which were the papal bulls issued by Pope Alexander VI in um, 1493 and 1494, which basically divided the lands discovered and to be discovered, like in the world, um, between Portugal and Spain, on the basis that, um, lands that were not inhabited by Christians needed to be. Um, this is a quote: "Overthrown and brought to the faith itself." So, like heatheness is serving as a justification for the literal takeover of lands. And the doctrine of discovery has, you know, long-lasting repercussions. It reverberates, you know, into the 19th century, um, and it's used as a justification by white Protestant Americans as well for, um, you know, the takeover of uh, indigenous peoples' lands. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, okay, so the, the to me like the core like the central core of this book to me is the concept of the heathen barometer. Mm-hmm. I I w- I love this section and I think that it's worth going over and I'm wondering yeah. if you can tell me um, you know, about this for you as like an intellectual concept, like creating it, coming up with yeah, it, defining yeah. it. Tell me about the, like this, this process for you of the barometer, what it is yeah. and how you kind of developed this because it's really fascinating stuff.
1: Yeah. So you um, mentioned Judith Weisenfeld a little while ago and actually the, so the concept of the barometer came out of a paper that I wrote for a conference that she organized at Princeton. Um you know, some years ago called, I think it was called Religion and the American Normal. Mm. In other words, you know, normal was in there, religion and the normal. And um, we were tasked with thinking about, you know, how does the the quote unquote normal come to be created, to be produced, to be contested um, through the lens of our own work. And so I was thinking about, you know, the concept of the heathen, you know, all of the, again, like the valences that came to surround it and how that concept produced a kind of norm of, you know, what American religion was supposed to look like. Um, So, so yeah, I came up with the the idea of the barometer for that conference and for that paper as basically like a, a measure, right? So like the barometer is this idea that heathenists can be identified based on all of these characteristics. And so, you know, you can hold up this barometer to different parts of the world and it identifies heathenism. Um, But I think the really interesting thing about the barometer also is that it can be turned back onto the U.S. itself can be turned back onto white Protestant America. And so that part of the book is really, um, you know, it's about how it can be used to identify people, other people as heathens, but it's also about how people thought to be heathens, people labeled as heathens, turned the heathen barometer back on the U.S. and said, you know what, you also are idolatrous, right? mm. You're idolatrous of things like money and yeah. white supremacy. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, Right. And, and, you know, like the, in terms of the landscape, right, like heathens are supposed to not take care of the land. People who are labeled heathens turn that back on the U.S. and say, you are the ones who are devastating the land, right? You are the ones who are actually doing terrible things to the land. Um, So they're turning all of these characteristics back. And, um, and I I mean, I think it's a really interesting and effective way to expose white Christian hypocrisy.
0: It's, it's a, to me, as someone who is interested in examining white Christian hypocrisy, it's extremely amusing, but also very important because I can, you know, think more deeply about that concept in, Mm -hmm. uh, in this day and age. Cause to me, it's relevant to today as well. You know, don't you, don't you find that to still be relevant in the here and now?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think there's so many resonances in the here and now. And I mean, the book, like I said, it goes to the present day and I, I end it with a, with a like postscript on yep. um COVID on the pandemic. Because as I was finishing the book, it was actually like right as the pandemic was beginning. Yeah. And um and I just saw so many resonances, like so many similarities to what I'd seen before, you know, in terms of both like using the barometer to call people heathens, but then also flipping it back on the US itself. So like with anti-Asian hate um in the you know as the pandemic was beginning and you know it's obviously continuing today as well um you know depicting chinese people as weird and backwards because of their eating habits this is the use of the healing barometer but then at the same time the u.s was you know the, the initial response to the pandemic and arguably the you know, ongoing response to the pandemic um was pretty you know wasn't great right like there wasn't enough PPE there wasn't enough hand sanitizer you know people were going around saying things like how could this be happening in the. US these are the kinds of things that should be happening in a third world country yeah so I write in the book that this is kind of like a use of a, a third world barometer because third world I think is another one of these terms that's like a a euphemism for heathen we don't really use that word anymore but there's other terms that we've now used in its place um and yeah so people are turning kind of a third world barometer on the US saying, you know,
0: how could you how could this be happening here? Right. Yeah, the the scope of this book. I mean, I'm really just kind of grasping it now. The fact that it ends with today, but it goes back centuries into the history of the country. I mean, this is a big scope of the project here. You've really kind of distilled down a massive uh multi-centuries issue into a I single tried. book. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's really cool. Um, okay, so you know i'm curious about some some other stuff too you know when we think of like american society's interest in unsaved heathens out there i love how you said that in the book they're like out there elsewhere you know what i mean it's often like this like very savior oriented view which you kind of touched on and like we will go there and we will fix this and we will Mm -hmm. save them you know um what are some but the thing that was interesting to me about this section of the book is how you complicate that and you acknowledge that some good things can occur um through these kinds of works and you know i'm wondering uh what are some good things that this view if we attempt to consider the good that this american mindset has accomplished in tangible good results like because i mean i can you know we can list the bad uh right. which i think we should do as well but what are some good things? Because that was an interesting little complication part in the book.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's really complicated, right? I mean there's there's certainly been a lot of Americans who have been motivated by a genuine desire to do good in the world, and I, I write in the book that you know I'm not I'm not morally superior to the people I write about, right? By any means, like just by virtue of being an academic, I think at one point I say like like I'm I'm sitting here in a comfortable office chair writing about this, like right. I'm not. I am not morally superior, and who am I to say that you know literacy, literacy campaigns, and clean water initiatives, and vaccine drives, and and other similar efforts are just bad, right? I think that's just a really kind of unnuanced way of looking at the world um, that doesn't do service to either the people who are involved in those efforts or really to the people on the receiving end who have had the agency, um, despite power imbalances to adapt and to transform these efforts to their own ends. Right. And you can you can say that as well of people who have historically been labeled as heathens, who have adopted Christianity and, you know, made it their own. Right. Like I'm not um, again like I'm as an academic. It's not as a historian. It's not my role to say, like, oh, these are people who are duped or whatever. Right. No, these are people who, with very clear eyes, have made Christianity their own. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in the book, I, I try to take a nuanced approach that that really recognizes these complexities. And I, I want to just you know, I want I want to mention a couple other scholars whose work sure. think, gets at these nuances really well. Um, so David Chang's The World and All the Things Upon It um, has quickly become one of my favorite books of the last decade. And it's about Native Hawaiian views of the world and it, it centers Native Hawaiian views of the world. And it looks at how missionaries came to Hawaii. Um, but really it focuses on how Native Hawaiians used literacy to kind of reinterpret the geographical orientation that um, missionaries tried to impose on them. So, like in the ways that they're translating textbooks, they are recentering these geographies on Native Hawaiian epistemologies. Um, and then it looks at how Native Hawaiians actively explore the world from a firm conviction that Hawaii is at the center of it, you know, rather than on the periphery. Amazing. Um, yeah, it's it's an incredible book.
0: Yeah. Well, Um, and I I spent about a year of my life in total in Hawaii. So I am getting a nice little recommendation here as well.
1: It's so good. Yeah. And then I just, I want to mention a forthcoming book from uh, Melissa Borja on Hmong refugees and religious change. Um, It's called Follow the New Way, and it's going to be out next year, I think in like February or something like that. Nice. Um, Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead.
0: Yeah. And, um, you know, there's a book that's out recently too, uh, by Charlie McCrary, university of Chicago press called sincerely held Mm -hmm. and it's, but how do we like measure the convictions of someone's like views and their, and like how they see the world, you know, if somebody is a very sincerely believing person that what they are doing is making the world a better place, how do you quantify that? Right. You you know? And it's like, that, that's what that's what's so complex about what you're talking about in this book is like when people go places yeah. and do things out of a sincerely held view right. that they're going to make the world a better place it's like really complicated so it's i so love I yeah. love that your book does that i absolutely love <laughs> it um but let's examine You know, maybe a little bit the root of the mindset, though, of that the savior orientation. Like, dig into that a little bit for me, because we have, you know, there there is some some judgmentalness that drives a lot of these things in a lot of history. And I'm wondering if you can dig into that a little for me.
1: Yeah, I mean, so so one of the points that I try to make in the book is that motivations, right, sincerely held beliefs, are not the same as the systems and the structures that they create. So this is a point that critical race theorists have been making for a long time um, about racism as, you know, it's not just about individual motivations, it's about structures. And so I think similarly here, you know, even if individuals have good, sincere intentions, the effects of those intentions has been and can be to create power structures that lift up one group as the saviors and the other group as those who need to be saved. Right. So the figure of the heathen, again, I, I, as I said earlier, has been crucial to white Americans imagining themselves as a superior people. Right. It's been crucial to white American exceptionalism. And I think it's, you know, it's really helped to kind of reinforce this sense in the face of white American anxieties that they might not actually be that great. Right? Mm, I think yeah. it's, you know, I think it's important to remember, um, that the U.S. was and remains a pretty, like, new, it's a, it's a pretty young social experiment, right? And so Americans who were engaging with the world in the 19th century were encountering, you know, nations and people whose, like, longevity kind of put the U.S. to shame. And I, I write in the book that calling these empires, like, heathen, reassured white Americans that they were superior because they were Christian. Mm. So it told white Americans that, you know, these other people in the world, Still needed their help, even if their civilizations, quote unquote, civilizations were thousands of years older than the U.S. itself. Yeah, and I think you know what this what this suggests is that whiteness has never been just about skin color, right? As as we can see from looking at white Americans' dealings with so-called heathens, it's about this position, um, not only of supposed superiority but also of supposed saviorism. Yeah. The white person is supposed to be the one who's helping and not the one who's in need of help.
0: You know, what's interesting to me about that is uh, as a lapsed Catholic myself, um, I I started to kind of pick up on these things as uh, an annoying teenager, essentially. Mm -hmm. And it drove me away from Mm. the church and religion of my youth. And I can't help but wonder how many people like me have left religion or their, you know, their, their, uh, their sect of Christianity for the exact same reason and how this is actually super harmful to the long-term health of the religion itself. Mm, It's like, um, you know, these kinds of things that turn people off like me, it, it, removes butts and seats in churches mm. you know what mm. i mean mm. so somebody like me who is against those things i stopped putting my butt in the seat and how harmful that is to the long-term survival of certain religious congregations you know does that that's make really, sense
1: that's a, yeah that's a really interesting point yeah yeah absolutely makes sense
0: well so now I want to dig into you talked about the US being like this uh young power but it's also you know powerful and um it has been pretty powerful on the world stage now for quite some time within our lifetimes and around this is the 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 discussion of aid humanitarian aid because with a country with tremendous resources and and wealth um much of which is like used in, um, you know questionable ways, uh, as far as like, you know, the military budgets and things like mm-hmm. that. Um, I'm wondering about the ethics of aid to a person yeah. like you who studies um, you know, this this trend of heathenism and going other places to fix other yeah. cultures who aren't yeah. a certain way. Tell me a little bit about aid and how you see this humanitarian aid.
1: Yeah, that is such a hard question. And I, I get asked a version of it a lot mm. um, when I give talks about the book, right? And it's often, it's often students who ask me, yeah. they ask me, you know, what, what should we do with this history? And I have had students <laughs> come to me saying like, you know, I'm planning to volunteer for the Peace Corps or the Red Cross or something like that after I graduate. And they wonder if they shouldn't be doing that because of this history. And I, you know, I have to admit that my answer has been Um, something of an evasion. Like I, you know, I basically say, I'm a historian, I'm not an ethicist. And I, I can't say what people should or shouldn't do with the history that I've written. Um, And, you know, I think it's also important to, to note that there are different kinds of humanitarian aid Um, as other scholars have pointed out, right. There's, there's emergency aid that could be like sending food and medical equipment um, after like a major natural disaster. And I mean, from my perspective, I think like that kind of immediate, relief seems less, um, I don't know, problematic, I guess, than the long-term kinds of intervention and aid projects that have the effect of trying to make other people's cultures and desires look more like the West.
0: Yeah. There's like an an aid barometer.
1: There's, yeah, yeah, there's, right. Um, So I don't know, I I guess, I guess what I'm hoping for is just that the history, you know, leads people to ask the hard questions, to ask why they want to do what they're doing, um, whether it's to help themselves feel like helpers, which I think kind of reinforces a savior-oriented view. Yeah. Um, or to try to to meaningfully change a world order that's, you know, privileges the white as savior position, right? Yeah. You know, like, yeah, is, you know, is is humanitarian aid in the service of reinforcing inequalities or, or trying to undermine them?
0: Let's shift gears here real quick. Um, yeah. I'm a I'm a dad, and yeah. everybody out there who has children uh, knows that parenting is very hard. Yeah. And your book addresses parenting as well, which made me laugh so hard when <laughs> I read this part. But it's the it's the parent threatening the child at the dinner table. Think of the starving children in so-and-so it's, it's rampant throughout the many decades of parenting at this point. Uh, And it sort of programs kids here to think that everyone who's not an American is like starving. Right. So like, for example, like when I moved to Mexico as a first year teacher, I was 23 and I was completely shocked that people in my city in Mexico didn't want to move to the United States. I was Mm -hmm. like, wait, what do you mean? You don't want to move to the U S. So like, I was like, basically, you know, programmed to think that like people elsewhere were like, like doing their hardest to get to the U S. So I'm very guilty of it. And (laughs) it's the way that I was like socially conditioned from a young age, but Mm -hmm. you know, the ways that parents talk to their children now matters. And I'm wondering what you would say to parents today to help reframe their conversations, to not damage the psyche of their children, to pity and shudder about other places in the world.
1: Yeah, this is this is so hard. So I'm a, I'm a parent too. And I have to admit that I have been definitely guilty of this as well. You know, I'm conditioned in the same ways, right? Um, but yeah, like I, I write in the book that this kind of framing, right? Like telling kids to think of the poor and starving children overseas so that they finish their own food. Mm-hmm. Um, it has the effect of like reinforcing this, um, this dual sense of gratitude and guilt that has been in existence for a very long time in the Anglo-Protestant world. Right, so it's gratitude for having like all of these blessings and then guilt for not doing more to like take advantage of those blessings and extend those blessings to others. Um, and again, like both of these feelings have, can historically reinforced this position of white saviorhood. Um, but I think that, that maybe one way to reframe these conversations would be to, to focus on the environmental impacts, maybe of the things that, of the things that that kids do, um, rather than comparing them to, you know, poor and starving children somewhere else. Yeah. So, yeah, like, um as I mentioned, one of the most effective ways that that people labeled as heathens have turned the barometer back on white Christians has been to show how much damage they've enacted on the environment and on the landscape. So maybe if parents, you know, reframed conversations around like, you know, food waste or like plastic toys and the buildup of, of trash, you know, these are issues that affect everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that would be a way to kind of know jointly work towards a better world instead of just you know trying to like instilling the sense of superiority and and guilt um versus you know the suffering people out
0: there i think anybody with a parent with a child under 11 right now probably knows the struggle of the lol surprise doll um <laughs> yeah. so that that's what I'm, that's what's immediately jumping to mind for me and i hope that gives somebody out there a chuckle um you know as a high school teacher as well uh One of my favorite things to do is, you know, expose high school students to like all kinds of literature and all kinds of TED Talks. And one of my favorite ones to do with high school students is a book called Americana by Mm -hmm. the author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And I loved that. Her TED Talk, The Danger of a Single Story, was emphasized in your epilogue as well, because to me, that encapsulated like a light bulb moment for a lot of my students that I've shown in my classes. Like that talk, that TED Talk Mm -hmm. by Adichie helps students to not assume the story that they've been told is the story and that many, many stories exist, but you have to want to find those stories. They're not just going to appear magically to you. You have to purposefully seek them out. Mm. And it's easy to not find them. It's very mm-hmm. easy to not find other stories, you know. Um, all you have to do is do the same thing you've always done, and you mm-hmm. won't find those. You know, what would you say to high school students um about wanting to find multiple stories uh related to the mm-hmm. concepts in your book, like you know, in within heathen? Tell me about the what well, you'd say yeah. to like high school students who like to, to like instill some, some, some curiosity in them to want to find these multiple stories.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think I would say what you just said. I really love how you just put it. I don't assume that the story you've been told is the only one. But I think you can, you can ask questions of history the same way that you do about literature, right? Like, you know, who, who are the main characters of the story that you've been told? why do they see the world the way that they do? Like how, how might their perspective be biased based on their position in the world? And then how might the story change if you see it from the eyes of different characters, right? You know, Mm -hmm. like I'm thinking about, um, you know, literature or movies that tell the same story from different perspectives, you know, so that you never quite know who to rely on. Um, I think that kind of literature has a destabilizing effect, but it's also a real world effect because that's, I think truly like how we operate as humans, right? We all have our own perspectives based on how we're shaped. So history, I think history that only takes one perspective, um, history that tries to like basically stabilize a worldview based on that one perspective is limited. It's Mm -hmm. limited and it's limiting. And I think we need to ask ourselves, like why are we being taught a history like that if we are being taught a history like that? and I think that's 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 what some people want American history to do, right? It's to reinforce a kind of single story of patriotism and of American exceptionalism. Um, but I think we have to destabilize that by considering, you know who's been left out of the story, who's been turned into kind of minor players and who's been turned into the antagonists? And what happens if you look at that story from these other perspectives. so in in heathen, you know I try to, present a multivocal kind of multi-perspectival history that looks not only at you know white Protestant views of the world but really like I I write in the prologue that this is an attempt to also return the gaze right so it's looking at um, how so-called heathen people people who've been given this label have returned the gaze on white Protestants and you know what does it look like if we look at this history through their
0: your eyes. Mm. You know, and I've noticed that you do have a pretty wide history of writing for popular outlets like the Washington Post and Wall Street Journal that are like aimed at mass audiences. And, you know, as someone who, you know, you're, you're a part of the tenure track grind system in higher education, which I'm sure you have plenty of thoughts about. And as a <laughs> professor living through this particular time and place, you know, I'm wondering about how you see your role in public-facing work as well and how contributing to mass public discourse and outlets like the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal are important to you. Why do you spend your time uh, putting work in those kinds of outlets?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I do see it as important because I I want these ideas, right? I want these his, this history to be out there um, and to hopefully... Like I said earlier, like make people ask questions about what they're doing, ask questions about why they might think about things in the way that they do. Um, and so I try to write in a way that's not very jargony or, um, you know, like I think academic writing can sometimes have a, a bad reputation and um, I don't know if that's always deserved, but I, I try to write in a way that, that public audiences can uh, find accessible. Um, I'm like by no means as good as other scholars um, whose work I really admire are at reaching large publics. You know, scholars like Anthea Butler, um, for instance. I I don't have that ability to reach large publics, but I do, and I I can try to write some of the ideas in my book as short, readable op eds, and um, and to talk about them on podcasts like this one. And I, awesome. I hope in that way to get the ideas out there and to to try to contribute some historical depth um to public discourse. So I love it. Yeah. I mean, you know, thank you. Like th- thanks for the opportunity Absolutely. to talk with you about this.
0: Yeah. What's uh what's next for you? What are what are you working on in the future?
1: Ooh, what's next? Um trying to get some sleep. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah, I I I'm hoping to to write my next book on um actually a couple of figures that I write about briefly in this one. Um Wang Chin Fu and um, Yan Fo Li, who were two Chinese immigrants in the late 19th century, who wrote pieces um, kind of against each other in the North American Review. One of them was called Why Am I a Heathen? Mm. And then one of them was called Why I Am Not a Heathen. Um, and I want to write kind of about the you know, religious choices and decisions of Chinese immigrants in the late 19th century.
0: Fantastic. Um, where, uh, where would you suggest people? You know, look next if they want to follow along with what you do.
1: Um, yeah, that's. I guess I'm not huge on social media, but you can find me on Twitter. I'm um, at Cage in Love, and um, hopefully, I'll you know keep keep writing little pieces here and there uh, related to that work. Um, and yeah, you know, you can find my current books hopefully at your local booksellers, and if not. Um, I'd love if you could ask for them to, to, to order them there.
0: Love it. Well, Dr. Catherine Jin lum this has been a wonderful conversation. I have loved chatting about your book, uh, Heathen, out now from Harvard University Press. Uh, Subtitle is Religion and Race in American History. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you again so much. Really appreciate it.